to the ArtCast. My name is Anna. And I'm Montana. And this is a podcast about everything art. Yes. So, that's us. That is us. <laughs> we, last episode we put out, we did a mini cast with our friend Clinton Hamilton. If you haven't listened to it, definitely go give that a listen. It's so good. So, so good. He's so smart. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Clinton. Yes. Hopefully. Definitely check out that last mini cast we did. Yeah. Hope- but this is the next episode yes. two. This is episode two. Full episode. The episode third one. Two. Yeah. Yes. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and get started since I'm talking about current event stuff. So I have I kind of have two things I want to talk about. One of them is an event that happened about a month ago. Um, but there's Ooh. some recent updates on it. So. If you are an art lover or an architect lover or you love historic places, you definitely heard about this. So on the, oh, let me find the date. It's like. I'm sad already. Yeah. Um, so on April 15th, the Notre Dame caught on fire. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of everything that kind of surrounded the Notre Dame and then the efforts that are going towards restoring the building now. So it's been over a month since the fire ravaged the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. Uh, It consumed the spire and most of the roof. Although the blaze has long since been extinguished, this historic church still isn't safe from the elements as the slow rebuilding process begins. So the Notre Dame for centuries has been landmarked uh, as into the Parisian identity, and the April 15th gripped the internet everywhere. Um, I was sitting in my drawing two class, actually, when I heard about it. Um, I saw somebody post something about it on Instagram, and I told my professor, and he pulled it up. And so we literally watched the Notre Dame burn in drawing two which was really sad but the um so this gothic cathedral which dates back from the 12th century is a masterpiece with its flying buttresses breathtaking stained glass windows and carved gargoyles inside the walls are priceless catholic relics artifacts paintings statues and other precious works The cathedral's facade has been the subject of countless paintings, and its soaring form also inspired Victor Hugo's famous novel, Notre Dame de Paris, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Aside from being one of the most important religious sites in France, it's also one of the city's most visited monuments. So the big question is, especially when it started on the 15th, was what actually caused the fire? Was it an accident, or was it on purpose? So, um... After time has passed, they've done a lot of investigation, and they found out uh, the French judicial judicial police believe that an electoral short circuit is most likely what caused the fire. So according to an anonymous official who spoke with the Associated Press, investigators still aren't allowed inside the cathedral for safety reasons. So the authorities are continuing to investigate the fire as an accident, but they are taking the cathedral's outdated fire prevention safeguards into consideration. Valérie Pécresse, <laughs> president of the Ile de France region in which Paris lies, confirmed that the fire was an accident, although officials haven't elaborated on the exact cause. The Paris police say that it may be linked to the 8.6 million renovation efforts underway. Wow. So, wait, 8.6 uh, it took nine wait, 8. hours. 8.6 million renovation efforts? Is that like the. Mm-hmm. Is that, like, in the cathedral? 8.6 million different, like, things going on? I'm confused. Um, so, 8.6 million, like, million dollar. Oh, so, sorry. So, like, that's the... So, yeah. I left out the dollar. I should have said dollar. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, it's gonna cost a lot to renovate everything and No, that totally make, that makes sense. Together. I just missed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it took nine hours and more than 400 firefighters to bring the blaze under control on the 15th and eventually put it out altogether. So no deaths were reported, but one firefighter was reportedly seriously injured. So it's a 
good thing. I think they were doing, um, I actually think they were doing, they were doing renovations on the outside of the cathedral, I believe, when the fire started. Um, so I think because of that, there weren't as many people yes. inside the cathedral. Yes, and it was also closed. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Which, like, spared a lot of people. So that's, like, one really good thing that, like, nobody was, um, killed and only one person was seriously injured. Um, so, let's see. Uh, so what survived the fire? So the fire crews initially said that they weren't going to be able to save the Notre Dame, uh, but they ended up being able to preserve the main structure, including the outer walls and the two bell towers, um... And then later, a tweet surfaced showing that the rooster from the iconic spire actually survived the fire. So the spire was one of the first things to completely collapse. Um, That was, like, the big thing that you can recognize the Notre Dame by. If you've ever been to Notre Dame or seen pictures of it, other than the, uh, I think it's the South Towers, um, which are preserved. Um... And so, but that's so interesting that, like, the rooster from the spire. It seems like. Survived. So it must have been made out of iron. Yeah, I'm assuming it's a hard metal, but it's really interesting that, like, of everything, just that, like, little topper piece is what's left. Because Mm -hmm. there's just so much of the other materials were really old, and I'm not sure how much. I'm interested to know how much wood made up the body of the cathedral. Because I know the interior had quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but. The actual structure, I guess, must have had some old flammable material in it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, um, as far as other things that were saved, so there were artifacts and artwork that were saved by the Parisian Fire Services and the city's deputy mayor for tourism and sports. Um, So, so that's cool that the Parisian Fire Firefighters went in and, like, saved a bunch of really important relics and pieces of art um and so apparently uh they made a human chain with their friends from the church um to get as quick as uh to get all of the relics that must be a picture they just like made a human chain and literally like passed relics down to get everything out as quickly as possible um yeah So, oh, this is another interesting thing. So, three beehives, which were home to about uh, 180,000 bees located beneath the rose window, survived the fire. The Notre Dame's beekeeper, Nicholas Jaunt, said he received a call from the cathedral spokesperson who said that the bees were flying in and out of their hives. And then he posted uh, a picture of the bees buzzing around one of the gargoyles last month. Oh, so the bees, the Notre Dame bees. That's kind of sweet. I mean, um, of everything, obviously, yeah. would be good if the actual artifacts were saved, but, like, the bees made it. Good for them. They did. The bees and the rooster made it. <laughs> um, the things that were just, like, just completely destroyed were the spire and part of the roof, which disintegrated in the fire. Um, and then as far as, uh restoration efforts so the president vowed to rebuild notre dame and so donations poured in from french philanthropists and charities to fund the extensive rebuilding costs um the university of notre dame in the u.s donated a hundred thousand dollars to the cathedral's relief and rang campus basilica's bell um 50 times the day after the fire um and then ibm has pledged to give one million euros and then Apple CEO Tim Cook also tweeted that his company would donate wow. funds. Uh, Disney actually reported uh, reportedly pledged five million dollars to the restoration. Yeah, they efforts. actually have with their with their park um, in Paris. Mm-hmm. And they also produced the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, yes. In nineteen ninety six, so they have that connection to the Notre Dame as well. Um, wow. But there were s- literally so many people who felt. Um, so strongly about the significance and the importance of the Notre Dame that it was, I'm pretty sure it was almost like the renovation costs were almost fully funded. Wow. Um, which is, which is awesome (laughs) how like 
something so tragic can still bring so many people together. Um, and even while the fire was burning, there were um, reported uh, like groups of people standing outside the Notre Dame singing hymns, which is really yes. cool. Yes, I um, saw some video of that, yeah. and that is breathtaking. So definitely look yeah. that up if you're listening and you haven't you haven't seen that footage. It's really incredible. Yes. Um, there's one more thing, and then I'll hand it over to you because I don't want to. I could talk about this for a very long time, uh, and I don't want to have to talk for like an hour. But um, so when everyone found out that the Notre Dame had burned and the spire was gone and part of the roof was gone, um, everyone was wondering how are they going to put everything together? Are they going to make it more modern? Are they going to restore it back to the way it was before? And so the legislators have passed a resolution in France that demands that the cathedral be rebuilt in the same way visually as before. So the restoration of the Notre Dame in Paris will proceed as a project of historical preservation. The French state has ended months of frantic speculation about how architects might radically alter the church's exterior by voting to ensure that the cathedral must be restored in the same way visually. So there are a few architecture firms, including United Kingdom's Foster and Partners and France's own studio NAB, uh, that were interested in doing some more eccentric redesigns, including the spire being a blinding white light and an entire rooftop covered in stained glass. And so there were all these architects that all of a sudden were kind of like, here's an opportunity to be creative and do something different. Um, And that got shut down by the Senate. Honestly, (laughs) I'm okay with that. Yeah, they were not super pumped about that. There's a group called Con... I think it's, but it's C-O-N-C-R-3-D-E, and it's a Dutch design company. Might already have a leg up on the competition, so weeks ago the firm proposed to reprint Notre Dame's gargoyles in chimeras with a material made from the fire rubble. And so this uh, company, they specialize in concrete 3D printing. Whoa. And so what they what they basically propose to do is take the rubble from the fire and use that in the concrete that they would remake the gargoyles <gasps> out of. So it would be kind of this rebirth Whoa. of something that was destroyed and that's now part of the place's history. At least they would do that for the gargoyles and um, the chimeras. Oh, I love that. So... Which would be, I think that's so beautiful. It's yes. so poetic. Yeah. So I thought, I felt like that was a pretty important one. Yeah. Even though the fire happened on the fifth, on the 15th of April, I feel like it's still relevant because, I mean, it's a really important piece of art and a piece of history. And it continues to be an important uh, endeavor now that they're trying to reconstruct it, especially for the French and for the world so yeah I think my favorite bit of news that came after the initial collapse was in the following few days where they entered the cathedral finally when it was deemed safe to enter and they took photos of the nave oh yes yes all there is left standing in the middle of this just rubble is a like beautiful like golden gilded cross at the very end of the nave and like the light was shining on it and it was just it's a it's a beautiful picture that there's just still this beauty even in all the sadness and like you said like all of this tragedy just brings people together there's always a silver lining and there's always going to be good out of yes anything so we'll have to i'll make sure that we have a picture of that on our instagram definitely whenever this goes out or right before it goes out Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Anna. Yes, absolutely. It's your turn. In that case, I will be bringing us our special art history topic today, and we are going to be jumping forward in art history to art present, practically. As you know, our art history section is just Anna or I, whoever is going that week, is going to pick a fun topic that either we want to cover or you can suggest we cover. So, again... Our Instagram and Twitters, which we'll plug at the end, you can suggest new topics for us there of any sort. This week's topic is the history and birth of Pixar. 
and how it changed animation as we know it forever Ooh. through art and computer science. So I'm super excited because I don't I didn't actually know a lot of the details of this, which might surprise some people because I am a massive Disney and Pixar <laughs> fan. Yes, yes you are. <laughs> But I had a really good time uh, researching this, and I've got to say my primary sources were the wonderful, uh, the Pixar story, uh, that's the name of it, the Pixar story documentary on Netflix, and a YouTube video I found that wraps that up quite nicely as well, and we will have the links to both of those in our bio. I'll but, have the links to my sources also. Yes, we, will, we link all of our sources. We're very good at that. But Pixar is known and beloved by everyone. I don't think that's incredibly arguable. I'm sure there are some Pixar, not haters, but dislikers out there. But Pixar is something that just every little kid knows it and knows the characters and probably has a ton of the toys because boy, do they make some money off of those toys from um, every film. But they started out in such a fascinating way, and I didn't realize the entire story was so back and forth, and there's drama between studios, and there's the trials and tribulations of having a great idea but not having something to push push it out there. Like, it's hard to know that sometimes your ideas can be there, and sometimes there isn't a way for it to exist yet, and... What Pixar did was they just crafted their own way. And that's, I just love, I love, love, love this story because every time I read it and I go back through it, it just reminds me of just like the creative spirit. Like you really have to push for yourself as a, an artist of any kind. So I think beyond it being animation related, art related, it also just is a very inspiring story of creating something out of nothing and creating an industry where there was none and so I'm super excited to talk about this but I'll just jump right in so Pixar started out as just an idea from just a few different guys and so I'm gonna give you a quick background on the three main guys who started about Pixar uh, we have Alvy Smith Ed Catmull and John Lasseter at least one of those names probably sounds familiar Alvy Smith and Ed Catmull were computer graphics guys working with Lucasfilm in the early, I think, 70s? Yeah, in the, sorry, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, Alvy Smith and Ed Catmull were working in the computer graphics division of Lucasfilm. This was the cutting edge of the time. So think Star Wars, those early graphics that we kind of consider as really old and very unbelievable to the modern eye. Those were incredibly cutting edge at the time. And some of the guys who were working on the computer side of that animation, so making the computer output what you have in your brain, this is the best way for me to describe it to um, anyone, they, they were working on that end. So, and of course, George Lucas is the head of Lucasfilm, if you didn't know. So Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all those guys. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where Alvy Smith and Ed Catmull are at. And then we have John Lasseter. John Lasseter was studying animation at CalArt. He was specializing in this new mix of computer animation and traditional animation. So traditional animation is cell painting. They literally painted onto clear sheets of plastic and they would paint every frame. Sometimes backgrounds were solid, like you see most of them, but every frame of anything moving was on these clear sheets. And so that's where that- That's a lot of work. Oh, it's. <laughs> I've seen some videos of it and it- painful to watch but Man. it is incredible the amount um, of time that that would take oh that rem that reminds me of um loving vincent yes exactly so it is quite that, like that was that one that was done traditionally yeah so loving like so loving vincent was a movie that came out a year or two ago about vincent van gogh and it was painted in traditional style using oil painting so every frame was um an oil painting and like I said, sometimes the backgrounds are still, and whenever they ended up doing that, so it's just someone maybe sitting at a table and just moving their hand, they would paint on the hand, and then they photograph, you know, a few of the hands, so they had the hand in one position, and as they moved it, they would actually just take the painting, which was still wet because oil is 
always <laughs> wet practically and they would just paint over and move the hand and so you could actually see where the hand yeah so that's that is what i'm talking about is this traditional method he was blending 3d animation and traditional which traditional had started going digital but it was just in the early stages so he was one of the first guys to be doing this rigging which is he would build a room set and have a 2d animation character just run through it but the set was perfectly you know proportional because a computer can get those mm -hmm. perfect proportions that you just can't get so when it turned it felt 3d and mm -hmm. so he was just on the cutting edge of those things and that's the kind of stuff he was producing he was winning high praise for uh creative short films that he was making and was just top of his class he uh upon graduation John Lasseter landed his dream job at Disney Animation and continued to experiment with these 2D, 3D shorts. And they were very supportive of him doing this. And as a as you start out in that career, they only give you certain small things to work on. And once they, you know, they think you're ready for it, they'll give you a big project. So he finally gets his first big project. And it's a movie called The Brave Little Toaster. Have you seen it? Yes! Okay. So I got excited, but then don't get too excited because okay. John uh, John works on this project eight weeks he has to make this pitch. So he pitches it as this 2D, 3D animation masterpiece, like going to be the one of the first ones to do this, and it's going to blend both of them together and blah, blah, blah. If you have seen the Brave Little Toaster and remember, you already know this didn't go the way he wanted. He pitched it to the uh, studio head, whose name was Ed Hansen, and you know they present it in a boardroom or theater type setting, and he's presenting it. Mm -hmm. And the story goes, Ed was just not smiling the entire time. And as soon as he finishes pitching, Ed asks. You know, well, is it cheaper or faster to do it using 3D? And John was like, no, it's the exact same. And he's like, then we're not doing it. It's pointless. And he's like trying to kind of convince him like, no, it's kind of, you know, why not? It just makes sense to, to do it this way because of the themes in the movie. Mm -hmm. And also it's just, it's cutting edge. We have to, we have to do this. This is where it's going. Mm -hmm. And Ed said no and no. And not an hour or two later after this pitch, John gets called into Ed's office and is told that he's done that Disney animation and he's fired. So What? Yes. So John gets fired. I know, the intrigue is the intrigue is deep. I love the story. So that is kind of like a rock bottom moment. And as an artist, like this happens sometimes and this was where I was like okay I'm in I feel this not that I've been you know told no by the head of Disney, from Disney. but <laughs> you know the feeling of just suddenly the bottom dropping out of whatever your dream or your project is so now it's 1983 so remember back we have Ed Catmull and Alvy Smith over at Lucasfilm and John Lasseter has a chance meeting with Ed Catmull and John gets hired by Lucasfilm through this connection. So remember, uh, Ed Catmull and friends were in the computer uh, graphics division, and they didn't have professional animators in this computer graphics division. They had the tech, but they didn't really have the pro animators. So they were just making do up until this point. So they hired John because they needed his really good animation talents. So at this point, there's no big features going out, but they're they're testing the boundaries just what John had wanted to be doing at Disney is making these new groundbreaking shorts he he wasn't really able to get off the ground at Disney doing this but Lucasfilm let him so in 1984 they released The Adventures of Andre Andre and Wally B and Wally B is like B dot but it stands for like a B he's a little B and it's this little short you can look it up on YouTube it is a very primitively animated 3D short. And I say primitive as someone who's born in 1996 and only knows the cutting edge stuff we have today. But this was absolutely ground groundbreaking. And so John was talking about this, I think, in a later interview. 
and he said art challenges tech and then tech inspires art and the cycle goes and i i i just absolutely died when i read this one because this is something he'll continue to say and will actually become the foundation for pixar is that art challenges tech and then tech inspires art and the cycle goes on so 1985 john and bill reeves of lucasfilm create a groundbreaking 3d animated stained glass night which appears in the live action movie young sherlock holmes so there's a scene where a stained glass picture has a knight in it and it like comes out to attack this like monk i've seen a clip of this one it's kind of freaky looking it's very ghostly but it's completely 3d done and it honestly doesn't look like it's this 3d animated thing plopped in there like i don't know it's it's incredibly well put in the space and the color and everything works very well so this was another big groundbreaking thing, and it was a big blockbuster movie at the time, I believe. So that was a lot of viewership looking at this 3D animation, which is brand new, so they're starting to get a lot of interest in it. And the guys at Lucasfilm needed a really strong computer to be the machine running these animations. So they created what is called the Pixar computer. And they called it the Pixar computer, and there's you can see pictures of it. Mm-hmm. It's really got the same Pixar, P-I-X-A-R, in like large caps that you see nowadays as Pixar's name. It was just the Pixar computer. It's a super powerful computer. And originally, they were just going... They used it, obviously, for their own work, but they... The plan was to just sell it to medical and government fields. So they sold it to like the military and to medical fields. It could actually take 2D images and help the, the user turn it into a 3D model. So they would use it with x-rays. They would put in x-rays and scan them and turn it into like a 3D model of a fracture or like a rib cage. Mm-hmm. So this was not bringing enough money into Lucasfilm still. So George Lucas decided... This computer graphics division is great, it's groundbreaking, but I really can't keep it running. It's not mm-hmm. making enough money. I have to sell it. So the these guys who have been working here, Ed and Alvi, who've been there the longest, so they asked George Lucas if they can create sort of a spin-off of this computer graphics division. So asking him if they can take all the people who are already doing work and just sort of become something else, even if Lucasfilm wasn't the one sponsoring them. So He agrees, and they take this old Lucasfilm computer graphics division, and they name it Pixar. But they needed investors. They need someone to come in and basically buy them to put money in so that they can start making things. Because we all know you really can't make stuff without money. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) true. So, there's a certain guy who also started up a tech company, and uh, his name is Steve Jobs. Oh, hey! I know who that is. Exactly. Steve Jobs had just finished, I think, the Apple II computer, and he had sold Apple. So Steve sees this this, uh, group. I think he actually met some of the guys at a benefit or something. And he was looking to invest, and so he buys Pixar from Lucasfilm for $5 million, which is quite a bit at the time already for a little nobody computer what you know, year group. was this so that's 1986 he invests five million more so that's 10 million now he's put into this you yeah. know they haven't really produced any films <laughs> he invests five million more this is 1986 mm-hmm. so that i mean it's probably more in with inflation but he <laughs> he's been interviewed about this or was you know um but he says he invested Five million more, quote, to see what they can come up with. He wasn't like, I need, I need X amount of things. I need this right now. He just said, here's the money. Let's just come up with something. Let's see what happens. Which is any, that's, it's both terrifying and so like kind of a dream. So it's, it's great. So what they come up with is called, it's a short called Luxo Jr., which you might be familiar with if uh, you're a bit of a Pixar fan. It is, uh, Luxo is actually the type of lamp that is in the Pixar logo that you see oh. bounce in at the beginning of Pixar movies. Um, that sound is, like, ingrained in my head. I can never get rid of, like, the boom chip boom chip boom We're leaving, <laughs> we're leaving that in. <laughs> 
So this was the first computer animated short film to be nominated for an, Ac- an Academy Award. They also produced several other short films. Then you have Tin Toy, which uh, they had really, you can tell in Tin Toy, they're really starting to nail like metals and plastics, which is, it's, it seems silly, but producing textures through a computer is quite difficult. And they're really nailing metals and plastics. But when you look at the baby in Tin Toy, which is chasing the little Tin Toy around, the baby looks like a like a monster, like a Frankenstein beast. Because, you know, the computers aren't built for this yet, and they haven't really figured out what to do. So just there's more of these little things that they will eventually overcome. And then the one that followed Tin Toy is called Knickknack, which is about a snow globe man who, uh, he's in his little snow globe, his little snowman. Oh, uh-huh. I've seen that one. Yes. Yes. This, this is my personal favorite. It, so for anyone who's thinking they might remember it, it comes on the DVD for Finding Nemo. They re-released it with Finding Nemo, I think, in 2003. So this was such <laughs> – this is my favorite. And it's a little snowman in his little snow globe, and he sees the uh, another snow globe, which is like a Florida snow globe, and he's like a Canada slow, snow globe. And the Florida snow globe has little, like, women sitting in a hot tub, and they're, like, waving at him. Basically, mm-hmm. the entire short is him trying to get, get over to them. So that's Knickknack. Um, and they're really starting to get off the ground here. People are starting to pay attention and see that, like, Pixar is something. So enter... Uh, Andrew Stanton and Pete Docter. So these are going to be two future directors with Pixar. They are also animators, I believe, but they help write stories as well. So Pixar finally uh, goes on to actually start working with Disney. They develop something called CAPS with Disney. It's Computer Animation Production System. So beforehand, they were kind of using their own coding system but they work with the Disney animators to develop an actual production system that everyone can use. In 1991, after they've been working with Disney for a while, they pitched the idea for Toy Story to Disney. So, it's originally... I was so surprised to find this out. Originally, Toy Story was quite edgy. It was meant to be for adults. And there's early cuts of very early animation, and Tom Hanks is already on the film. And so they have voiceovers with Tom Hanks voicing uh, Woody. And Woody's mean. Really? Woody's, Woody's a jerk. <laughs> Which Woody's already kind of a jerk in the beginning of Toy Story. Yeah. But this early cut is rough. And it was a, this was pitched by Jeffrey Katzenberger. Um, and there were lots and lots of rewrites. Its debut was was a massive success when it finally came out. All the rewrites went really well, and it turned into something that was very kid and family friendly, but still appealed to adults. And uh, this was done in part with Disney, so they actually, like most of the money from Toy Story went to Disney, and that is three hundred and fifty million. That's the the gross product, and so most of that money just went to Disney because they paid for it. And, you know, they had helped build the software with them. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jobs is still put, putting money into Pixar. And he's also getting money back out of them. So Pixar isn't really turning a big profit. After, so that was 1995 when that debuted. And then 1997, they agreed to become 50-50 partners with Disney. So they would split the, the shares, which is still not a lot. But the next film they produced with Disney in, part, in partnership with them is A Bug's Life. And that was 1998. Uh, A Bug's Life was really successful. And so uh, Pixar could finally get their own studio. So they start planning a studio space um, before I think they're working out of like an office building, which is hard to imagine. So following A Bug's Life, we have several huge wins for them. So I'll run through them real quick. We have Toy Story 2 in 1999. This was originally asked for, plotted by Disney. They weren't going to let Pixar do it, which seems ridiculous. Because they technically owned, like, half the rights to the idea. And Pixar fought for the right to make it. And they finally were given it. And when they were given the project, they found out the story was a mess. And they were told they weren't allowed to redo it. And they redid it anyways. Which I was like, yeah. <laughs> Same. They they took the story and they completely redid it. They fixed it. And it kicked butt. And Disney just couldn't say boo about it. They, they had to go with it. Next was Monsters, Inc., 
Uh, this is 2001. Wow. That was, I know, we're moving along. That was in 2001? Yes, so we have 1999 to 2001. So right now they're making movies every two years, which is still ridiculous with the early uh, technology they had and the money and the weird relations with Disney. Um, so Monsters, Inc., 2001. For this film... You'll notice there's a theme of, like, hurdles and overcoming hurdles. Hurdles, overcoming hurdles. And using that tech to, like, help inspire art. And when something can't be done with the art, you gotta fix the tech. And so that's been the thing going on here. So they needed to master the art of fur for Monsters, Inc., for Sully. And it's incredible how many how many individual hairs are on Sully. And each one of those had to be rigged and put into that model. So, this is a spell where John Le- John Lester steps down from uh, Pixar. So, Pete Docter steps in to direct this film. And it came out amazing. It was super successful. And riding off of that, two years later, my favorite. I'm not going to hold back on that. My favorite, Finding Nemo. Um, so, this is 2003. The director was Andrew Stanton. And for this one, they had to learn water effects, realistic water effects, something that is honestly an immense struggle with any, uh, even 2D animation that you were going to see any time before this. Water effects, like, here we are. They've had to master water effects, and I um, have seen some of the footage of how many layers it takes to make just the drop-off scene, and it is so many. There's, you know, layers of a filtering where they add like tiny particles in the water like there is when you're swimming so like the little debris and sand floating in the water they add like subtle rays of light and then other like larger ripples from the actual like waves moving and they filter it down so it gets like less as it goes down it is absolutely incredible so that's awesome then we have the incredibles the incredibles was a massive success as well um, and again, with like well, tons more people again in this one and whew, one second, I just lost something. Yeah. So that one was super successful, but, uh, relationships with Disney were starting to deteriorate. So back to that 1997 contract we talked about with Disney, where they went the 50, 50 split Pixar wanted more of that cut, but Disney's CEO at the time, Michael Eisner was not budging. People have lots of feelings about Mike Eisner. You can look that up for another time. Maybe I'll cover Disney's history in another episode. But Michael Eisner was not budging. So come 2004, Pixar and Disney's contract just breaks down. They don't renew it. Pixar starts looking for other companies to partner with. They are not happy. They cannot find anyone. Disney creates their own computer animation division and starts developing Toy Story 3. So they start developing it without Pixar, which, not surprisingly, Pixar's a little pissed about it. They're very upset. Um, they, yeah, and, and unsurprisingly at this time, this is just a money grab with Pixar's characters that Pixar will not benefit from. So Disney is making a film that they won't benefit from, and when toy sales go out, they won't benefit from the toy sales either. Of the characters that Pixar developed. So it's a lot of, lots of things there. And, you know, artists are not money grubbers, but it's (laughs) not necessarily, but it's important to be credited for the things you create and to benefit from them and not have other people benefit from them. So understandably, Pixar is very upset. So 2005 comes and there's a CEO change up at Disney. The new CEO, Bob Iger, goes back to Pixar to reopen talks, and I loved the quote so much that I had to enter the whole quote in here. So, Bob Iger, in a later, I think 2007 interview, says this. He said, For Disney to be truly successful in the future, we have to return to the glory days of animation, which begins with finding the right people. The more I thought about it, and the more I realized... No, sorry. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that Pixar had more of the right people than any other place in the world. End quote. So Bob Iger comes up and he realizes this has been a huge mistake. They have to go beg back. Pixar, their own computer, computer animation department, 
is real bad. <laughs> and I will actually go over some more of that later. Um, but 2006 comes, they, um, they have some talks, and Disney actually buys Pixar. This isn't, this isn't a loss for Pixar, because Pixar needs funding in order to, to happen, because, and Disney has the money. The only issue with their earlier agreement was Disney was sort of getting in the way of creative freedom, of actual, like, rights to the work, and it, it wasn't a fulfilling relationship, and this way... Uh, Pixar can make the movies they want without interference from Disney because Disney is fully bought into their ideas and drive. So B Disney has not just bought them out, they have bought into them. So following this 2006 decision, it is amazing what can happen after this. So if you remember, at, the movies were coming out just about every two years. It's like one movie every two or three years for like 10 years at this point. But suddenly, once Disney buys Pixar... I think they were able to sort of speed things up because they actually have the time to. So you'll notice we have 2006, Cars, 2007, Ratatouille, mm -hmm. 2008, Wally, -E, 2009, Up, 2010, Toy Story 3, which they'd finally rewritten to be something they were both happy with, 2011, Cars 2, 2012, Brave, 2013, Monsters University, 2015, Inside Out. 2015, also, The Good Dinosaur. And 2016, Finding Dory. And then 2017, Cars 3. Which, I know there's been some more since then, I'm, I'm sure. But, that that's a lot of films. That is 10, that's 11 years. And 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12. <laughs> 11 years and 12 films. That's incredible. So, they, once they just had that funding, they could just do what they needed to do and no worries. So, there are a couple duds in there, if you ask most people. Cars 2 isn't really a big, uh, a favorite of anyone's. And The Good Dinosaur, um, wasn't a favorite, but if you notice, it's one of those major stepping stones in animation. Um, if you ever get a chance to go back and watch it and you don't have to pay for it, <laughs> Um, you can actually see the backgrounds and the details and the effects are incredibly lifelike, especially the end credits. And, uh, I really didn't like the film until someone mentioned to me, they're like, it's not really as much a film for entertainment as it is kind of showing off what we can do now these days, which is okay, except when you realize it's like an $80 million film that they made, yeah. but, Spend a lot you know, of money making something. Exactly. <laughs> to each their own. I'll let them do that if that's what they want to do. So, they are continuing to make bank on all their films, but that is not all. The 2006 Pixar buyout put John Lasseter and Ed Catmull in charge of Disney's animation studio. So, that's, if you weren't following, Disney's animation studio did the 2D movies and started to transition to 3D, but they were real bad at it. So, Disney's animation studio was really struggling. Um, some of the films that were coming out at the time were... Um, I've got a list of them. Da, 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 da. So, in the early 2000s, the movies that were coming out of Walt Disney Animation Studios weren't really hitting with everyone. Some of them are favorites to us nowadays, but at the time, weren't really hitting. So, I'll name a few of them. We have Dinosaur, Emperor's New Groove, which while I love it, was not a box office hit as, as much as we expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Lilo, Lilo, I know, right? Lilo and Stitch did pretty well. Treasure Planet didn't do so well. Brother Bear did pretty well. Home on the Range, not so well. So we see it going back and forth. And suddenly, mm -hmm. I think Home on the Range, that's 2004, they just start sliding. So at the same time, Pixar's Pixar's just taking off. They, they put out The Incredibles in 2004 at the same time as uh, Walt Disney Animation puts out Home on the Range, which mm -hmm. just completely different movies. Yeah. And you can notice right after that, uh, Walt Disney starts actually teaming up with other studios to produce mm -hmm. films for them. So Vanguard Animation does a film called Valiant, which I think is about a passenger pigeon. And then Studio Ghibli does Howl's Moving Castle. 
which is a big fave for many people, but basically Studio Ghibli did it, and Walt Disney just produced it out there to make it available for everyone. And then a something called Core Feature Animation did the movie The Wild, which absolutely bombed at the box office. I remember when this came out, it was around the time of like Madagascar or maybe a little bit afterwards. It was kind of following that hype of like, oh no, animals are loose in the city. Woo. Um, it bombed. And that was not even done by them. So that's that came out kind of the beginning of them finally resolving that contract. But the uh, the one where you can kind of see Dis- Disney's animation studios um, they really, really tried to do 3D animation for a few years, and they, they just couldn't do it to the level of Pixar. So a few of those movies that are like that, they did Meet the Robinsons and Chicken Little. Those are the two that you can kind of look at and you can see Disney's version of 3D animation versus Pixar. It's mm-hmm. incredibly different, because at the same time as... Who did, who did which one? Um, no, those, both of those were Walt Disney. So, Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons were Walt Disney Animation. All this to say, having John Lasseter and Ed Catmull in charge of of Disney Animation as well as Pixar, these two branches that are now both owned by Disney, brings in new life and leadership where they desperately needed it. And in the end, it wasn't Disney that saved Pixar, but Pixar that saved Disney. They really couldn't put out that 3D animation skill that Pixar had and Disney was just like we've had enough of it we're gonna let the masters do what they do and we're gonna pay them to do it for us and uh, it actually saved Disney animation the the actual 2D animation department 2D was becoming something that everyone was certain was gonna be get, gotten rid of just pushed out um, they were selling the old animation desks they laid off like nine animators in the mid-2000s. It's a lot. Like, these animators aren't just, like, anyone, any old animators. They were very skilled, top-of-their-field people. Oh, my gosh. And so, after this had happened, John Lasseter comes in. People are saying, oh, it's over now. You know, they're going to get rid of 2D animation, and they should just trash the studio. And John came in, and he said, no. Um, he even rehired some of the Disney Renaissance animators from the 90s, to come and help them get their groove back. He said he knew that something was special with this 2D animation department. They had had this beautiful renaissance in the 90s with Lion King and Pocahontas and Aladdin, all those movies, The Little Mermaid. All of this was so amazing and they just kind of lost touch Mm -hmm. because they were trying to keep up with other things. And so Pixar and Walt Disney Animation would become two separate studios, one with a 3D quality which would bring all of Disney's 3D animated movies, the quality would just all come up to the level of Pixar. Their ideas and concepts would develop separate from each other. They wouldn't become one studio. They would have separate ideas and develop as two separate studios, but with the leadership from this awesome Pixar group. They just announced this past week the next uh, Disney Pixar movie. It's called Onward, and the trailer released, I think, on Tuesday. And it's going to be quite different from their usual it's an urban fantasy film so it's fantasy creatures set in a city town feel and it it's going to be really sweet it's got several other um several actors like uh tom holland and chris pratt gonna be playing the brothers that's awesome yeah so it's going to be a really crucial time i think they're probably entering a different phase of their creativity i know I don't really know what Disney's up to right now with all those remakes. I can't, obviously can't speak for them, but the way that Pixar has stayed true to their learning and creative spirit and trailblaze this whole field of tech and art is absolutely inspiring. Their films are quirky and weird and the life that they breathed back into Walt Disney Animation may have just saved both studios for good. And that's it. I just really wanted to bring that and share uh, how special this story is and It kind of inspired me as soon as I finished uh, my research on it. I was like, I have to draw right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's something about just their nonstop. They they didn't stop for anyone. They didn't sacrifice quality. And they Mm -hmm. fought for their own ideas 
until finally Disney just had to say, okay, like, your ideas are incredible and your quality is amazing. We're just going to pay you to do what you do best because we can't fake it. Yeah. And, you know, that that's a special quality in a, a group of creatives. So that was your art history moment. And I'm so glad to have awesome. that for everyone. But I hope I hope everyone learns something new yes. and feels inspired to go make something and to stand up for your art. Yes. And don't compromise your stuff just because somebody tells you that they don't like what you're doing. Because eventually, exactly. if, if you're putting out good stuff and you keep working and you don't compromise, somebody's going to see that. Yeah, don't sell yourself out. But yeah. also, but also, I think... I don't, I don't think you can call what they did selling out, but if you want to call being bought by Disney selling out, go ahead and sell out when it's best for your art, because they knew. Yeah. And they when knew it's a lot they of needed, money. Exactly. They knew for they you needed to do funding. what you want to do. Exactly. It's, yeah. not, it's not giving up what you do. It is knowing that in order to do what you do best, you need this funding. Yeah. and. That's okay. And and they didn't allow Disney to keep pushing them around. They waited until right. that contract was the way they wanted, and then they took it. Right. So, so, so inspiring. Good. So good. But All right. now I believe it's time for Art versus Art. Yes. So we're going to start doing it a little bit differently now. Yeah, so we are. <laughs> After one Previously <laughs> on our single episode, full-length episode we've released and we've done this, uh, Montana and I have discussed the subject for the art versus art recorded an episode and now we have a jar of topics and I will pick a topic from the jar and then Montana and I will have about five minutes to come up with our item of choice so like if it's like favorite artists we have five minutes to come up with our favorite artist and why yeah and so we won't make you wait <laughs> it'll be a little bit more time-based yeah, so we won't have as much time to prepare, which should make this a little bit more interesting. And I think it'll also be a little bit shorter than our previous version of this, which is going to help yes. us spend more time on the important subjects, which are the first two sections. So yes. I think it's going to be very fun. Yes, exactly. And it's kind of a game now, which is... It is. Games are fun. Um, so I'm just going to move around my pieces of paper. Oh, and if you can think of any topics or subjects that you would like Montana yes. and I to compete on, let us know. You can let us know on Instagram and Twitter. Which, yeah, holler at us. Let yeah. us know. We are on both of them, and we will, again, plug them at the end of the episode and yes. in our bio. Yes. Okay. Da-na-na-na. Okay. Here we da, go. Alright. The topic is best art tool. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I came up with this one when I was writing them, and I was like, this would be a good one. Okay, so five minutes starts now. You won't have to sit here for the whole five minutes. We'll put some, like, Jeopardy music or something in here while we research. Alright, I'm ready. Okay. And we're back! Alright, uh, Montana, do you want to start it off? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm so scared. Don't be scared. I don't, well, why do I feel like I'm somehow going to lose, even though this... <laughs> okay. The best art tool. <laughs> I'm really afraid everyone's just going to roast me. Okay. Best art tool is a mechanical pencil, but only a very, very good mechanical pencil. Okay. So my argument for why the mechanical pencil is the best art tool, first of all, you don't have to sharpen a mechanical pencil, which is the sucky part about sketching on the go, which I do all the time. And mm -hmm. uh, a nice mechanical pencil with like a thicker lead, which is my favorite. I have one that actually has massive lead. It's like a short <laughs> and thick pencil with an ergonomic grip because I'm a grandma. And it's, it's my favorite pencil. Like I'm actually kind of... Mm -hmm. I just started talking about it, and now I'm wondering, like, where it is and if it's safe, because I love it, and I want it to stay safe. Anyways, a very good pencil is the best tool 
because it's the most basic and necessary tool, but it's the best type of the most basic and necessary tool because it can go everywhere, it doesn't need to be sharpened, easy cleanup, easy stowage, because it doesn't get pencil marks on the inside of your bag, because you can put the lead inside the little, the, the, inside the, the thing. The little lead container. Yeah. And that's my very short and sweet argument as to why a decent like lead pencil is the best art tool. And I'm ready ready to be absolutely roasted by your amazing choice because I <laughs> I'm dead. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. My best art tool that I chose was a pencil. <gasps> also, um, amazing. Yeah, except I I think I would prefer a non-mechanical pencil. It's, like, a little bit more traditional. Yeah. But, because I, I like to use a, like, a normal, like, a really good, like, maybe, oh, what's a good? Blackwing. Like, maybe, like, an HB4. Oh, yeah. That's probably my favorite, like, kind of pencil. Well, um, honestly... My, like, the pencil I have in mind is not a mechanical pencil as everyone else has in mind. It's literally mm-hmm. like a normal pencil, but you can stow away the lead inside the body of the pencil. And it's like a fat, fat lead. So it's not quite a tiny, skinny lead. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. You got a pencil <gasps> yeah. like that when we were in Europe. Yep, yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, it's my but baby. I think for me, I prefer, like, just your classic... Yeah. The, you have to sharpen it with an X-Acto knife. That's how I learned how to sharpen yes. it in art school. Um, that way you can get the perfect tip every time. And also when you're shading, you have a little bit more uh, depth. Because you can either like use the tip, like the fine like yeah. tiny tip, or you can use the edge. And so there's a little bit more diversity. Yeah, you, in, you don't really like, get that sweet edge with a mechanical of any kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I prefer just, like, a normal, like, HB4, uh, pencil, um, but also, like, kind of for the same reasons that you said a pencil is because that's, like, the ultimate tool for anything. Yeah. Um, even as a graphic designer, I tend to go for a pencil in my journal or a really nice pen, um. But, I mean, when you're drawing with a pencil, you can erase things. You yes. can go back and change things, and, and then you can go over it with a pen. But you can use a pencil anywhere. Like, if you're at a restaurant or something and you need to jot something down, just grab a napkin. Yes. So, there's nothing like writing in, like, pencil. Pencils. We're so, so basic. I love it. We're both on the same brain wavelength. So... When you said pencil, I was like, yeah. Like, yeah, 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 Pencil's yeah. the best. So, I guess now the ultimate is mechanical versus... Which I feel like, like I'm very interested sharpened. to see everyone's opinions. Because I know several people who are, like, hardcore mechanical pencil people. Like, even the little, mm-hmm. little leads, which I don't use. And... Yeah. I know some people who are, like, hardcore not. So, this is going to be interesting. I'm excited to see what our polls turn up. Yes, we'll have to put a an Instagram poll in the stories when yes. this episode goes out, and then we'll have to put one on our Twitter. Yeah, and see, this is that's a good like art versus art. Yeah, pencil versus pencil. <laughs> Which pencil do you prefer? I I like this new art versus art thing because I, it's kind of suspenseful. Yes. Like I'm kind of afraid to see what gets picked. Which like <laughs> the addition of fear is like surprising to this podcast. So I'm glad it's good. It makes it gives you an <laughs> adrenaline rush. Which is good. Exactly. Um, but I guess we should do, like, a few updates, and then we should probably yes. close it up. So, do you have anything new? I do. You were doing stuff this week. I've been. Why don't you share? So, I've been busy. Um, quick update from last episode. I hinted that I may be starting a big project, and end of hint, I did. I'm working on a children's book with a local Tennessee writer, and more details probably to come this fall. I'm super excited about that. And uh, this whole week, which if you're listening later, which you will be, 
June 3rd through 7th, I have been at the Atlanta Zoo, and I've been participating in a really cool program called Art Gone Wild, and they pick 40 artists to come to the zoo and paint and draw their hearts out all week, and um, there's a small sale that goes on during the week from the Tuesday to the Friday that I was there, and smaller works like little watercolors or sketches or little in-process pieces that aren't like the big ones on canvas or ready to be framed just the little ones Mm -hmm. those go on sale during the week and the profits from that are collected and half goes to the artist and half goes to conservation and then every artist is required to complete at least three at most eight final larger pieces um and um so everyone pours their heart into these bigger paintings i did eight acrylic paintings on canvas this year which is great (laughs) um (laughs) and i drove back today and those paintings will be in an art show next weekend where big donors and stuff will come in and purchase the work and half of those proceeds will go to conservation so it's a really great program if you're listening and you're regional to atlanta um you should definitely apply next year i'm pretty sure the the actual um applications go out in like february ish so definitely look out for that it's super cool i love the fact that half the proceeds goes to conservation but it's just an incredible week i love making friends with all the awesome artists there i have so many art friends in atlanta now they're like my art gone wild family and i get to hang out with animals for a whole week which is my dream so yeah this is like art gone wild is literally the perfect situation you. Yeah. Like, I couldn't think of a, of a I, I can. you experience. I have, I have one more me than that. There's, like, one step more me, and that is if it was with an aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You should see if the Georgia Aquarium would do it. Oh, I'm afraid. The Georgia Aquarium is too crowded. It would be chaos. The zoos are crowded enough, but being trapped in... Oh, man. That actually kind of sounds horrifying. <laughs> now that I think about it... <laughs> Maybe Archon Wild is, like, it's good. It's a zoo thing. Yeah, it's good. It's good. But, yeah, so um, that's what I've been up to, and I can't wait for Anna to update everyone on her life. Yes. Well, what's happened? A lot's happened. (laughs) Uh, So, the last episode was uh, Montana and I had just graduated. So, we graduated on on, uh, May 4th, and then that whole next week... I moved everything from Nashville to Greenville, and then from my parents' house to my new house, and then the May 12th, which is a week after graduation, I got married. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. And then my husband and I, yes, and then (laughs) uh, that next week, uh, my husband Hunter and I went to Cancun for a honeymoon. And it was awesome. And then after that, we basically spent the next week kind of moving everything in uh, to our new house. And Hunter and I were both still kind of looking for jobs. I was definitely still, like, on the look for jobs. Hunter uh, was waiting to hear back from this one company. Long story short, both of us now have jobs. Hunter is going to be a systems engineer and so he'll get to travel a little bit, which is awesome for him. And he's, like, super pumped. Um, and then I'm going to be a junior graphic designer at a, a marketing agency here yeah. in Greenville. We also got a dog. Yeah, I was about to say, you better mention Thor. Yeah, Thor. So, hey, Anna, does your dog have, like, an Instagram? Yes, he does. <laughs> My dog has an Instagram. His name is at Thor dog of thunders i think that that's it yeah um but he's a little demon sometimes but otherwise he's he's sweet when he's cuddly but yay he's so sweet but as far as like art stuff goes i'm so excited to start designing things again um the company that i'm gonna i can't wait to see yeah the company that i'm at um they work really fast paced um and it looks like I'll be in charge of a few clients, which is awesome. Um, of course, as a junior graphic designer, there'll be a lot more proofing things that I have to go through. Um, but I'm super excited to kind of get involved again in a community of designers and creatives who, and they all seem really fun and really nice. 
so I'm I'm oh, super yay. pumped. I'm also excited to like have time to work on some studio stuff because I really miss painting. So time to break oh, out. That's the gonna old be so paints. great. Yay! Ooh, so that's all well, for updates. It's a lot of updates. Yeah, that's our updates. There's <laughs> <laughs> quite a few updates. Yes. Anna, let's share our Twitter and Instagrams. On Instagram, we are artcast.pod, and on Twitter, we are artcastpod. You can also email us at artcast.pod at gmail.com. So that's new. Yes. So you can send us emails uh, to artcast.pod at gmail.com if you have any questions or suggestions. You can also tweet at us as well. And or definitely DM check us. out our polls yeah. or DM us. We, uh, we both check it and... Um, we're looking for more topics that you guys want to hear. I also want to give a quick thank you. I'm going to start doing this at the end of every episode. Yeah. Our our intro and outro music is done by my roommate, Casey Catalbis. She's awesome she has, and super cool. She's amazing. Um, I've started adding them at the end of the past podcast, but I'm just going to start shouting it. Like, yeah. Nah, yeah. She's, she's great. So... Um, definitely look at her. She's doing some really awesome science song Mondays. They're so cool. You ask her a question about science and she replies in a song. And Casey is a, like, incredible singer and musician. She's so talented. Yeah. So I know this is an art podcast, but, um, I'm just saying singing is quite an art and you guys should check it out. (laughs) It's amazing. Yes. This is also our first long distance podcast recording if you couldn't tell you can't tell (laughs) the quality is probably a tiny bit better and uh the podcast is significantly longer than the last one but whoops that's okay oh oh no it's fine anyways um this has been such a joy and anna thank you for doing this podcast with me absolutely i think it's about time for us to sign off (laughs) so i'm anna and i'm montana and And this this is is the the art cast. cast That's art, folks. Mm-hmm.